Great to see y'all. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here and I'm part of our uh, preaching team. And uh, there's a great story in the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, where uh, there's a particular king who constantly is coming against the nation of Israel. It's the king of Syria. And he's always figuring out where the Israel army is and trying to attack them there. Uh, But before he can get his troops into place, they're always warned about it and they're able to get away. And the reason they're warned is because God gives this special insight to one of the prophets. His name is Elisha. And so uh, he has this special gift of uh, God to be able to know here's where they're going to attack. He can warn and then the people, uh, you know, get, get out of there. And so the king of Assyria, understandably, is getting kind of perturbed by this. Every time he comes up with a battle plan, it's thwarted by this prophet Elisha. So he says, okay, we got a new thing we got to do here now. We got to get Elisha. That's the, that's the thing we're after. And so he figures out where he is. He's in this little town called Dothan. And in the middle of the night, he sends his troops to surround the home where Elisha and his servant are staying. And so uh, they wake up in the morning and the servant walks outside, you know, check the paper, you know, look up, listen to the birds sing, whatever you do in the morning, I don't know. And he looks up and it's like, oh man, we're surrounded. This is crazy. There's soldiers, there's armies all around us. And he starts freaking out. I can just imagine him running back into the house and going, Elisha, Elisha, there's, there's an army out there. And Elisha has his, you know, morning coffee and He's just calling him. This is good coffee. Have you tried this? This is pretty good. He's just totally chill. The guy's like, what are you doing? It's, we're surrounded. We're going to die. We're going to die. We're going to die. We're going to die. And he's like, what are, you, what are you talking about? And they go over to the window and the servant says, look, look out the window. See all the people everywhere. We're going to die. We're, they finally found us. And Elisha's like, man, you got to relax. Like, we're okay. What, what do you mean? How can you say we're Okay. And, and so they walk outside. And I just imagine Elisha's out there with his cup of coffee. Ah, oh, what a morning. The guy's freaking out. And uh, you go, man, how, why the difference? Why the freak out versus the calm confidence? Well, here's what it says in 2 Kings chapter 6. Elisha said to his servant, do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Right? And you just imagine the servant at that point is like, what do you mean those who are with us? Like you and me? Like that? There's no one else with us. What are you talking about? And Elisha prayed and said, oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. You read the rest of the passage, you realize that they're surrounded by an angelic army. Right, Elisha and his servant are surrounded by the Syrian army who's surrounded by an angelic army and the difference in response is entirely a difference on what can you see. Right, if all you can see is the darkness and the chaos and the threat and the trouble, you're gonna be afraid, you're gonna be anxious, you're gonna be freaked out. But if you actually can see a reality bigger than that, that most people can't see, there's a chance for you to be calm, there's a chance for you to have poise, there's a chance for you to be steady, under that kind of pressure. See, Elisha and his servant, uh, through this process of seeing what couldn't be seen, they, they got to take the red pill. Some of you familiar with the red pill? Uh, the red pill, this comes out of uh, The Matrix, that old prophetic movie uh, from the late 1990s. And uh, The Matrix, uh, you know, Morpheus comes to Neo and he says, hey, you got a choice here, bud. You can take the red pill or the blue pill. If you take the red pill, you're gonna see reality. 
You're going to see things as they really are. You're going you're to be exposed to the truth. If you take the blue pill, you're just going to stay blind and in darkness, right? This is why lots of people who think they've got the corner on the truth, they say, oh yeah, we've got the red pill, right? This is actually, I guess, growing in like conspiracy world, uh, which by the way, okay, what I'm about to say, I don't have a Bible verse for, okay, this is just first Flesholonians. Uh, I actually, one of my little secret beliefs is I think everybody believes something that someone else would consider a conspiracy theory. You know, like I'm, there had to be someone else on the grassy knoll. Like, I mean, well, that's a conspiracy. Anyway, so whatever it is, right? But if you, a conspiracy theory is basically saying, I think I have reality. I think I have the truth. Well, here's the thing. As followers of Jesus, we get exposed to the ultimate red pill, the ultimate vision of reality. And it might be to some like a conspiracy theory that sounds crazy and unfounded, but we actually have the reality. Here's the reality. The reality is that there is a God. He's on the throne. He's fulfilled his plans through Jesus and he's worthy of all praise from all creation. That's the reality. That's the red pill. That's the truth. And so tonight, the the title of tonight's sermon is a glimpse of reality, a glimpse of ultimate reality. That's what we're talking about. Right? And some people will talk about what is reality. And, and existentialists will say, well, it's all about what you experience and the meaning you make of that. And nihilists will say, none of it matters. Not, there is no reality. And uh, materialists will say, well, you know, all that matters is, and all that's real is what you can see and what you can taste and what you can touch. And we go, no, 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 no. We know what reality is. Reality is there is a God. He's on the throne. He's fulfilled his plans in Jesus. And he is worthy of all praise from all creation. Now we know this particularly because of this apocalypse, this revelation, this apocalypse of John. Now, when you hear the word apocalypse, you might not realize what it actually means. Do you know what the word apocalypse means? Right, if you go to most, if you go to someone at work tomorrow and go, hey, what do you think apocalypse means? They'll probably go, what's wrong with you? And you say, well, I was at church yesterday and they'll say, what's really wrong with you? Like apocalypse. People think it means like the end times. That's not what it means. The word apocalypse the Greek word for it, apocalypsis, means unveiling. It means uncovering. It means revealing. Right? That's why the book is called Revelation. You're getting a, a, a picture. You're getting to see what most people can't see. And that's what's going on in this passage. And this, if we can see this ultimate reality, I think this has such power to help us stay faithful and calm and steady and confident in a crazy world. All right, so let me give you a couple reminders as it relates to this series in the book of Revelation. Uh, Revelation, uh, we're gonna say this a lot, is less about predicting and more about preparing. It's less about predicting, it's more about preparing. We'll get to predicting, that's coming the next few weeks, buckle up, it's gonna be real fun. Uh, But mostly it's about preparing, right? A lot lot of times as Christians, we spend all this energy trying trying to predict the future. When is Jesus gonna come back? How's it gonna work? Listen, we're not on the planning committee, we're on the welcoming committee. We don't get to plan how it works. And Jesus says, I'm not really concerned about when it is. Here's what I wanna know. He says this in Luke 18, when the son of man returns, will he find faith on the earth? In other words, will we be ready? We'll be prepared. We said this, that revelation isn't a warning about persecution, but it's a warning about the temptation to compromise in order to avoid persecution. Get this, if you're a follower of Jesus, persecution is inevitable unless you cave. Unless you compromise, unless you fold. 
And so the, the thing isn't like, boy, how do we avoid persecution? No, the thing is, how do we stay strong when the opposition comes? So tonight we're looking at Revelation 4 and 5. Uh, we read a little bit from the end of chapter 5, but we're actually going to look at all of Revelation 4 and 5. And as I was preparing this, I was kind of thinking, man, how do I, how do I bring this how do, I, how do I bring this out? And what I realized is actually that, that Revelation 4 and 5 is more meant to be experienced than it is to be analyzed. Um, so normally, you know, I'll have a passage of scripture and I'll come up with a few different points of application or something that we'll look at. Uh, there's no points tonight. You could say it's pointless. The sermon's pointless. Uh, but I just want to, I want to have an experience together. Because John had an experience of revelation, of apocalypse, of unveiling, and it changes everything. And so I want to I try to follow John into the throne room of heaven and have an experience of the glory and power and revelation of God. So that's what we're going to try to do tonight. We'll take, take communion and we'll sing, and I hope that what we see will actually inform the way we sing and the way we celebrate. So that's what we're going to do. Let's pray together and we'll get to work. Father, thank you so much for your word. God, as we said last week, let he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. And so God, would you allow us not just to hear tonight, but to see. Help us to behold the king. Amen. All right, so you're gonna need a Bible tonight. Um, you're absolutely going to want this. If you don't have one open, uh, if you're going to go on this journey with me and go on this journey with us, you're going to need a Bible. So reach in the seats in front of you, uh, grab that Bible, get out your phone. Uh, if you aren't familiar with the Bible, good news, Revelation's the last book. So just go to the very end, uh, find the big number four, and that's where we're going to start uh, tonight. And it begins in chapter four, verse one, uh, the apostle John, he says this, after this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. This is interesting to me because at the end of chapter three, Jesus was on the outside of the church of Laodicea knocking, going, hey, would you let me in the door? <laughs> would you let me in? If you'd open this door, I could come be with you. Well, John's now going, the door got opened to me and I got to go see what Jesus is all about. It says in verse one, and the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me, like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. There's some things to show you. There's some things to see, right? This is why we have to experience this. I remember when I was headed off to college, I had been on a recruiting trip uh, to this college. It was a few states away. Uh, but uh, when my parents actually dropped me off, they wanted to go around. And I was like so confused. Guys, you're not, you're not the ones going to college here. What do, you, what do you need to see all this for? And they said, and my mom said this. She said, well, I want to be able to imagine where you are. I want to be able to, when I hear from you, I want to be able to see it. Listen, this is what we're being invited into. What's heaven like? Here you go. What would it be like if you were in the presence of God now? Here you go. What's the hope that we look forward to? What's the campus we're moving into forever? Here you go. This is it, right? You don't need to read those heaven tourism books. I died for 57 seconds and I saw my uncle Eddie and, and now I'm back to write a whole book about it. You don't need that. You just need Revelation 4 and 5. And there's a whole cinematic feel to this. We'll talk about this in a moment. But first, let's read verses two through six. It says this. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. 
Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were seven burning torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. This uh, whole scene, I just can't help but see this uh, cinematically, right? I'm a movie buff. I love going to see movies. And I don't just like to see movies. I'm also pretentious and I like to see films, right? And I pay attention to films and, you know, I I pay attention to who who are some of the best cinematographers in the business and all that sort of annoying stuff. Uh, Because there's something actually about the way you tell a story that's pretty powerful through the cinematography, through the way the camera moves and the things it pays attention to. And as I read Revelation 4 and 5, I was just going... Uh, this, this is so cinematic. It's like the doors open and the camera starts moving in. And you see these bright colors, right? That's what's represented by the, the different stones that are mentioned in verse three. These, these stones, that they're all kind of luminous. They're kind of bright. They're sort of semi-translucent, but also colorful. And they're showing off all this light. And there's these creatures we'll see in a moment, and they're flying around, and there's lightning flashing. And the, the, it's starting to, right? This is a, this, and yet here comes the camera. It's just moving in. It's moving in. And it's taking in all of this scene. And it begins to see the throne, right? And, and every part of this, just one paragraph, is supposed to just overwhelm your imagination, it's supposed to get you to go, wow, right? This is all imagery that is just designed to evoke a sense of this is what's real. So verse four talks about these 24 elders. This is representing the completeness of the people of God uh, because there were 12 uh, who were the, the 12 tribes. And so there's an elder for each of those 12 tribes. There were 12 who were apostles. And so this is a picture of the complete people of God gathered around God. Uh, you see this in verse five, that there's these flashes of lightning and these peals and rumblings of thunder. It's almost as though God is fizzing with power, right? Picture Mentos and Diet Coke. Just coming out of the, right? And, and this is because God is glorious, right? And, and get this, the word in the Bible for glory, what it means is weighty. Have you ever wondered why every time God shows up, there's an earthquake? It's because God's heavier than you. He's heavier than everything else. And when he shows up, boom, 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 right? And so now the camera's moving in and the camera's beginning to shake and the Dolby surround sound is going and you feel the, you feel the bass in your body like shaking you. But then he sees these seven spirits of God. This is a picture of the completeness of God's spirit and God's presence, uh, that God's spirit is, is complete and is everywhere because this, this number seven represents fullness and completion. In verse six, it's interesting, even his language, he's like, and before the throne there was as it were, like I can't exactly totally explain this, this doesn't make sense. But it was like a sea of glass, like crystal. Get this, the sea is always in the scriptures a symbol of restless chaos. That's why even at the very end of the book when it says there will be no more sea, some, one person came to me one time and was like, that sounds terrible. Are you telling me in the new heavens, the new earth, there's no more oceans, there's no more beachfront property? No, that's not what it's saying. It's saying there's no more chaos. And yet here it is, this sea, but this sea under God's feet is as still as crystal. It's like the forces of chaos are tamed under God's power. And so the camera has zoomed in and it's taking this shot and it's getting closer and closer and closer. And all of a sudden it sees movement. 
And it starts to zoom out a little bit to see this movement of these creatures. And we're introduced to these creatures in the middle of verse six. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man, which begs the question, what's the rest of it look like? And the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now this, again, it just feels weird to us. What is going on? What's the deal with all these weird creatures with all the eyes and with all the wings and with all this? Like, what's going on? Well, here's what's going on. Is every empire, every government that that is strong, that has been like a worldwide influence, all all the time, part of how they communicate their power is, is with creatures, with animals. This was true in Rome. This is true in our day. Look at some of the pictures of uh, animals, creatures from ancient Rome. I realize some of you men apparently think about this every day. Um, But what you have is this eagle, right? The eagle was this strong symbol in Rome. It was all over the place. It was in all their insignia. Uh, It it was a, a meaningful symbol. It was this picture of power and of strength. You also have the wolf. And uh, there's great ancient mythology around this wolf and its impact on on Rome. But this wasn't just Roman culture. This is true actually of cultures even now, right? Take a look at at this. You've got the British Empire. You've got the United States. You've got China. You've got Germany. Right, the way that you communicate strength as a country is you pick a really sweet animal and you go, yeah. That's us. We're the eagles, baby. We're the dragons. Yeah. Now, here's the point of all this. Is here you have all these creatures and all of these creatures, what are they, what are they doing? Well, here's what they're not doing. They're not proclaiming the glory of earthly empires. They're actually subservient <laughs> and proclaiming the glory of the king of kings. They're not interested in the power of earth's kings, they're interested in the power of the king of kings. And the point is being made here that all of these governments and all of these empires that seem so supreme and they seem so scary, and by the way, they are powerful and they are scary, but their their power is limited. And in the end, they will acknowledge God as the only one who's holy, right? That's what it's gonna say. Verse eight, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The word holy means unlike anything else. So all these nations that think they're all so awesome and unique and special, in the end, they're gonna go, God, you're actually the only one. Holy, holy, holy. History has played this out. The Babylonian Empire, over. Roman Empire, over. British Empire, over. Gang, America's a blip. We're not gonna last forever. And China or whoever wins, they're not gonna last forever. Right, the, the point is, like, like here's the thing, sometimes, sometimes people will say about church, man, I just, they're too political. Here's what I wanna say, we're not political enough. 
we're actually content to give our undying political loyalty to a weak party in a weak blip in history country. It's too small. And I get it, we gotta live here, we gotta do our best to love our neighbors and we gotta do what we can to try to make the best of what we got. But listen, this is not your ultimate home. This is not your ultimate future. Your ultimate future is in the new heavens and the new earth saying, holy, 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 there's no one like God. And the creatures are giving the first taste of this. It goes on, verse nine of chapter four. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Now, there's another little thing I wanna point out here that's going on. This is another place where, where this vision of reality is subverting Rome. We miss it because we don't understand some of the things that were commonplace in the language of Rome. But it's right here, right? Rome, if you go back and you look at how Roman talked about itself, part of the propaganda of Rome was that Rome was the eternal Rome. So isn't it interesting that two times in verse nine, whenever the living creatures uh, give glory and honor and thanks to him who's seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who's seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. In other words, Rome's not eternal. God is. Then there's another interesting thing that Rome would do. When the emperor would come to town, they would have this imperial procession, kind of a parade, you know, a marching band type thing. And as the emperor was coming into town, doot, 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 you know, everyone would announce, worthy are you, Caesar. Worthy are you. The emperor Domitian, who was the emperor at the time that John was writing this, he actually added to it, right? Everyone else said, worthy are you. Do you know what he added to it? Worthy are you, our Lord and God, Domitian. <laughs> Don't you love this? I mean, these little jabs at Rome, these jabs at these proud, earthly, we think we're gonna last forever empires. And yet, what do they say? Verse 11, no, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. You created even those wimpy little tiny emperors. You're the king, you're supreme. So the camera's in there, you're seeing these elders bowing, you're seeing these creatures shouting, and now the action really begins in chapter five, verse one. The camera zooms in, it slowly moves and it finds a hand. Look at chapter five, verse one. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. The camera's focused on this scroll. The scroll, every commentator agrees, the scroll is the, is the scroll that contains the plans of God to renew and redeem all things. 
This is the plans of God to bring healing to the nations. This is the plans of God to undo all the chaos and all the darkness and all the evil and all the injustice. And these plans are sealed up and someone has to be able to open the scroll, right? And so the angel says, who can do it? Who's capable? Who, who, who's worthy? Right, maybe you've gotten a letter before and it says, you know, to be opened only by the people who live at this address. And you're like, will they know? Like, how, how will they know? Right, imagine you get a letter and it said, you know, to be opened only by he who is worthy of opening it. What well, kind of depends? What are the contents of that? We don't know. But in the contents of this scroll, who is worthy to unveil and unleash the plan of God to bring healing to the nations, to undo Satan and sin and death? What well, can only be, get this, it can only be someone who hasn't contributed to the darkness, who hasn't contributed to the chaos, who hasn't contributed to the selfishness and the evil, and it doesn't appear that there is anybody. It says in verse three, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it, and John is overwhelmed by this. Now the camera cuts to John, and he's collapsing in a heap, and he's weeping loudly, he says, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Listen, friends, if there is no one to undo the darkness, we should despair. If there is just permanent chaos and it's never gonna end and it's never gonna get better, we should be like John. We should just collapse in the heap and be absolutely hopeless. But there's good news. Verse five. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of Jesse has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. I was thinking this week, it's interesting, you know, if, if one of the elders, right, John would have been one of the elders as one of the apostles, which makes me go like, did John say this to John in the vision? Or like who, I don't know, stuff like, you ever have stupid questions that don't matter, but it's like kind of interesting? Maybe this was Thomas's big breakout chance to prove he wasn't a doubter, you know, like. <laughs> Either way, someone, someone tells John, hey man, weep no more. There's hope. There's life. There's a future. How, well, how can that be? Behold, the lion of tri the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered. That word is victory. That's the word we looked at last week. To him who conquers, to the church who conquers, to the church who conquers. Well, someone has conquered. And this person is described in all this language that is triumphant. And it is describing this messianic king, this lion of Judah, this root of Jesse. All of these are tied up in ancient uh, prophecies about the Messiah, right? Genesis 49, Isaiah 11. These are all coming into play there. And it's saying he's conquered. He can open the scroll. He can open its seven seals. John begins to stand up. The camera gets John and he's standing up and he's rising and he's beginning to look because get this, he hasn't seen, he hasn't seen this lion, right? And so they come and they're like, hey, don't worry, don't despair. Look, that's what the word behold means. Look at the lion. And John gets up and the camera's right on him and he looks and it pans over and it sees this in verse six. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, 
which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. What? <laughs> That's not what we expected. Wait, 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 man. You, you said there was a lion. And instead there was a lamb. A little, weak, small lamb. And not just a, a lamb, but a, a lamb that had been slain. Right, the way they did this, I mean, I... I don't know how much you've thought about this or even seen this. There's some cultures today that will still do sacrifice of lambs and you can go watch how they do it, I guess. And they grab the head and they slit its throat and it bleeds out. And so what John would have seen was not a big, strong, powerful lion, but a lamb with a big, bloody neck. Now there was some strength to this lamb because read the rest of the vision. It had seven horns. This communicates complete power, right? Seven is, again, that number of perfection and of fullness and of completion. The horns represent power. And with seven eyes, this is likely a picture of complete wisdom. But get this. This lamb is also, what does it say? Standing. See, this slain lamb, he died. He was slain, but now he's standing. He's raised. He's victorious. His death was not the end of his story. And no, he doesn't appear to be conquering in the ways of the world, right? The ways of the world look like the lion and it looks like the ox and it looks like the eagle and it looks like the dragon. But the way of God is the way of the lamb. And yet this way is actually more powerful and more full of wisdom and more full of strength. He expected to see a lion and instead he saw a lamb. And this, friends, this is what should shape our understanding of power. Get this. He actually saw something more powerful than the world could ever offer. Look at what commentator Tim Chester says. He says this, nothing could be more subversive. Instead of the mighty beast of imperial power, we have a lamb. Instead of a victorious general, we have one who has been slain. Instead of the power, glory, and wisdom of empire, we have the weakness, shame, and folly of the cross. We worship the king who was slain and who has conquered through death. And as we shall see in the rest of Revelation, conquering through death is the paradigm of how Christians should respond to empire. This is what it is to follow Jesus, to pick up your cross and follow him. To follow him in the way of death, to follow him in the way of self-sacrifice with hopes that in his power someday you'll stand. It says then in Verse eight, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. They fall down before the lamb. Get, get this, get, get how significant this is, right? What were, they were falling down and worshiping who before? God. Now they're falling down and worshiping the lamb, which can only mean that this lamb is in fact God, that he is in fact divine, that he is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father. Through him, all things were made. And so they're bowing down before Jesus and they're giving him glory and praise. And then, and then something stunning happens. The camera zooms to what's in the hands of the elders. 
Do you see what's in the hands of the elders? There's the harp, the songs of God's people, and there's these bowls of incense. And what does it say those are? The prayers of the saints. The ordinary, humble, half-baked, not that faithful prayers of the saints are incense before God. I don't know about you, but I, I, don't, I don't often leave my time of prayer like ready to like spike my Bible and go, yeah, there we go. It's more like, oh, I felt so distracted and I don't know, am I even asking for the right things? And does this make any difference? And does, does God care? And, and this passage says, yes, he cares. And I, I get a chance to see what you're praying for. I, many of you this week even, uh, you emailed me back and said, here's some stuff that I'm praying for that I would like you to pray for. And I know what I pray for. I know how I pray for God to hold my kids. And I know how you're praying for God to provide in the midst of what is a difficult and tumultuous season. And I know how you're praying for the courage to endure through a, a time of suffering and a time of pain. And I know the uncertainty that exists in a room like this and we look around and we're scared and we care about all these people and we see so many potholes and so many landmines and so many places of danger. And here we go, we just offer up, Lord, I guess, would you help? Right? And that's all prayer is really is going, God, I can't do it. Can you? God, I'm not sufficient. Would you be? God, I, I, I don't, I'm not worthy to fix this. W would you be? And that fills the throne room of God with incense. See, this whole scene feels real far out and it feels real far away. And I want to tell you, you and I have a role to play in this scene. You're one of the actors. You're a contributor to the picture of what's going on through the prayers of the saints. These elders sang a new song, it says in verse nine. Here's the song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Jesus, you are worthy. Jesus, you didn't have any sin. You didn't have any darkness. You didn't have any chaos in you, but you faced the darkness and you did it with sinless obedience. And now you died on a cross in the place of sinners from every tribe and nation and people and language, which just means heaven is the most beautifully diverse place of people from all over the world. Because God didn't just die on the cross in Christ for one group of people, but for anyone who would believe him. And he died to commission us. Look at verse 10. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. In other words, the people of God are not just receivers of the grace of God, but then they're actually commissioned to be priests. That's what part of the reformed tradition that we're part of says, hey, there's a priesthood of believers. So it's not like I have some sort of junior Holy Spirit badge as a pastor and I get special access. No, 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 we're all in this. It's always funny to me when I might get a, you know, function and they're like pastor would you pray I'm like well I guess <laughs> do you want to pray like I don't know like will the food taste any better if I pray I don't know like does it, it doesn't matter right but 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 we get to all be part of this priesthood we get to all be part of this thing Jesus is worthy of that 
Look what it says in verse 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Did you count up how many things he's worthy of? Right, when in doubt, seven. Did you see it? Worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. These are like the ringing of a gong, the ringing of a bell. This is like the power chord of the electric guitar. This is the kick drum and the whole kit. You are worthy of all of these things. And I heard every creature in heaven, verse 13, and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. All creation, this is the future, is that all creation will bow before Jesus. Now, I had said that I didn't have any real points, okay? But I do have one application for us tonight. And it comes from chapter 5, verse 5. Chapter 5, verse 5, the elder says to John, weep no more. And I just want to say this is actually the thing we're all trying to do, is weep no more. We're all trying to have some hope. We're all trying to have some confidence. We're all trying to have some joy. We're all trying to get through it. We'd all like the end of this year to be better than the end of last year. And we'd like next year to be better than the year before. And, and yet it's hard and it's chaotic and it's painful. And we got that diagnosis and we're facing that situation. And how are we going to weep no more? And, and this is the same. I mean, we, we live in a world of, of sorrow and fear and anxiety and chaos and everybody feels it, right? And the world comes to us with answers and they go, hey, 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 weep no more. Why? It's not that bad. Really? No, it's actually worse than you think. Because all we see is the physical decay. We don't even see the spiritual decay. And the world comes and says, hey, 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 weep no more. Why not? Uh, because, you know, just, you can do it. Uh, well, if I could, I would. And I can't. And the world comes and says, weep no more. okay, why? Come on, you can pull yourself together. No, I can't, right? Like, like, why would we be able to not weep anymore? You see what he says? Weep no more, why? Behold, look. It's Elisha praying, Lord, would you help him see? Lord, would you do an apocalypsis here? Would there be an unveiling? Would there be an uncovering? Would you help him see? And so I just want to tell you tonight that if you're in a place where you're going, man, I don't want to weep anymore. I don't want to be so hopeless. I don't want to be so discouraged. I don't want to be so afraid. Great. I don't want you to be either, but your only hope is to behold, to look, to see the lion and the lamb. And as you look to him, you'll have courage and you'll have strength to go, yeah, yeah. You know what? I might even end up with a cutthroat, but by golly, I'm going to stand because I'm following Jesus. And he's the lion, and he's the lamb, and he's the holy one, and he alone is worthy. 
And if it means I suffer and I struggle and I fight and it's hard the whole way, you know what? It's worth it because I get him. Amen. Let's pray. So Lord, uh, we want to weep no more. So God, help us to see Jesus in all of his glory, in all of his splendor, in all of his humility, in all of his sacrifice. Help us to see Jesus. We pray in Christ's name, amen.